Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is it. The final two acts of Faust Part 2. It's the surprisingly straightforward, if somewhat fragmented, acts 4 and 5 of Goethe's life's work. Will Faust be saved? Yes. Will Daniel and Claude applaud that fact? No. Will we get sidetracked with a disgusted and frustrated meditation on Faust's proto-fascist designs and how those designs can be seen at work in the contemporary American culture of this year of our Lord 2020? Damn straight. But we do get to take a look back at where we've been in the podcast and try to wrap our heads around what we can take away from Bloom's aristocratic age. Spoiler Montaigne and Don Quixote. The Cannonball is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. If you like our show, check out some of the others on the roster, like 10 American Presidents. Join Royfield Brown as he explores the legacies and context of some of the more consequential occupiers of the White House. If you're online, check us out at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook at The Cannonball Podcast and on Twitter at Cannonball Pod. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and review wherever you listen. to the Cannonball podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. Uh, this is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me as always is Daniel Doherty. How you doing, Daniel? Hey, hey, uh, pretty good. I, I embarrassed myself earlier today. I won't get into too much detail. Suffice to say, a sort of slapstick situation, which is exactly like one I experienced a week ago, happened. So what I'm saying is I feel completely uh qualified to be telling the internet and the world at large all about literature right now because i am a pretty smart dude (laughs) (laughs) well you know this is sort of uh us limping to our conclusion of a year of faust you know we were talking about it (laughs) off air and i i didn't even really realize we've been doing faust in some iteration for about a year now yeah it's the faust case (laughs) um and i but i you know i mean part of that year of course was taken up with a hiatus from when we were 
all just thrown into the psychic maelstrom of uh, the the early COVID lockdown situations and all that. You know, we 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 put we put this on pause for a little bit. So you know, yeah, uh, you know, not exactly a year, but it definitely has felt like a a year of Faust. And you say limping limping to the end, and you know, I don't want to get people to turn off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it does <laughs> Acts 4 well, and 5 okay. Which round out Goethe's life's work His life's work Faust Parts 1 and 2 um, I, I and, and I guess as we talk about it Like people understand what I mean But like After the Just the sheer slap in the face Bizarreness of like the 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 Valpurgisnacht in part one, the classical Valpurgisnacht, the 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 reverie in in you know my city in Greece and stuff. The way it rounds out, uh, boy, I I don't know. <laughs> it's a little funky. Yeah, it's it's a little weird. I mean, okay, so we were talking about this last time. I was sort of teasing you a little bit that. Um, you know, how do you think it's going to end? Yes. And, and <laughs> you, was, yeah. you're grasping for, you know, uh, some kind of new iteration of the eternal feminine and, you know, some form of beauty that manifests itself that Faust strives towards. Nah, he, he becomes a real estate developer. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> that's sort of where this goes. Although, um, thematically, you can link it in, and I'll talk about that a little bit. I think, uh, David Luke, who did the translation, like the main translation that I'm using this time around, mm-hmm. um, has some good ways of, of, I think, bringing that together. But it, it is, it, it, it takes a turn because, I, I think you put it rightly. For all of the the sort of wildness of everything that came before, it's really pretty tame by the end, except for the last moment. Yeah, sort of the last two moments uh, that lead us out of the play when Mephistopheles is grasping for Faust's soul. I mean, that is one of the most astoundingly ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, the, okay, we'll get to it, but I always said that the only way that I think, the, the only kind of, um, visual media that I think captures the, the high seriousness mixed with the high campiness and the kind of whiplash tone would be something like True Blood. Sure. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw that on HBO, but it, I, it, I, it, I didn't, but I, I do know it by, by reputation. Yeah. And and there are moments in that that are so astoundingly bizarre and campy and serious and wild all at the same time that kind of capture what um, you know Mephistopheles' exit is really sort of like, and then it goes into sort of cosmic territory straight out of the Paradiso. That's yeah. sort of how it ends up. But before you get to that, it's really pretty kind of straightforward <laughs> in an <laughs> yeah. unnerving way. And yeah. I, I, I never thought that I would use that as a complaint. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, I, and I think part of what kind of gave me the whiplash with it is that, you know, the, so this is all about, you know, the entire play again, using the term play loosely, because I do not yeah. think anyone could stage this. 
Um, actually, yeah, it's a, I, I actually laughed out loud at the at the very beginning of Act Four. The stage direction, stage direction, mind you, says rugged serrated peaks. A cloud floats in and touches a peak, then settles on a projecting ledge. It then divides. No, this, you're not actually describing. It. Anyway, um, those, those poor theater texts. Uh, but no, the so like the whole play has been about Faust's desire, right? It's been about the the drives of one, pretty venal drives of of one man, and Mephistopheles just like you know heaping the well. It, it, Faust is like Homer strapped into the ironic punishment department in hell, and Mephistopheles is the demon feeding him uh, donuts until he's supposed to go crazy, right? Right. But of course, Faust never goes crazy. Well, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, he sort of does. But so I keep thinking it's like, okay, like each one is raising the stakes, right? Like he had like, okay, you, in Faust part one, you basically seduce a young woman and, and leave her, you know, and then you raise the stakes from there to, uh, pulling off, uh, a, 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 a gold scam on the emperor, <laughs> on the Holy Roman emperor. And then you up that with chasing the, the mythological paragon of feminine beauty. Where do you go from there? And he just goes back to scamming the emperor. <laughs> yeah, that that's really okay. So we're sort of dancing around it, but that really is the action of Act Four. And so tonight mm-hmm. we're going to be covering Act Four and Five. Um, Act Four. Okay, the Luke makes a convincing case that um, you can kind of break this up into. I'm sorry. I, I maybe yeah it was Luke I'm using two sources I'm using the the Norton uh translated by Walter Arndt and edited by Cyrus Hamlin that I'm using the notes from that and I'm also using Luke's uh Oxford World Classics translation sort of for the translation and for some of the introductory material and the other notes um I believe it's Luke makes the case that you can view um, part two as two sort of like um, not exactly discrete parts, but interrelated parts. Mm-hmm. You've got the whole Helen thing from act one to three, and then you've got uh, old Faust acts four and five. Yeah. And there, there are thematic links like the, the way that, <clears throat> I think the way that you can think of Goethe doing this is creating sort of motifs that wind back and forth. And that seems to me to be the, the, the best suggestion that there are these kinds of linking mechanisms throughout the text. Um, the, the critique, and this has come up in sort of past episodes, the critique that I had of the Norton annotations is that too often it sort of assumes a continuity that I really don't think is there. Yeah. Um, there, there's a kind of continuity. There's a kind of connection between the pieces altogether between the acts or between the parts of Faust two. And there are thematic links back to Faust one and certain kinds of ideas get reformulated and reworked and reprocessed. But I mean, to try to view this as a kind of realistic drama or, or literal drama or something like that is, um, 
it, it strikes me as as futile, like a, a real misreading of the text itself. Um, I think the 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 text is it, if it is linked, it's thematically linked and not realistically linked. If that yeah. makes any sense to any listener. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what happens is he's the 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 veil of Helen becomes this kind of cloud that whisks him away to back to Germany. And and it always makes me think of um I mean this is extraordinarily stupid, but <laughs> an image I always get is um you know in Super Mario Brothers when you have those sort of like cloud monsters that are throwing the spiky things at you yeah. and you jump on its head and pop it off and then you get to ride on its cloud for a little bit. Yes. That's what I imagine Faust doing is just kind of like hovering <laughs> in this uh, cloud. As long as we're being stupid, uh of course, um people who came home and watched the Toonami programming block on Cartoon Network in the late 90s might remember when Goku had his uh, flying cloud on Dragon Ball. <laughs> there you go. It's it's <laughs> kind of the same thing. Uh, but anyway, it sets him down in the mountains. And this is a, a, a moment that has certain kinds of resonances. It, it, it has a resonance with um, the beginning of Faust Part Two. Remember when when Faust wakes up after um, after the events of Faust Part One, and he's in that enchanted landscape, and he has that that monologue that we sort of went over, you know, long long ago when we were doing the beginning of Faust Part Two. Yeah, um, this is another sort of callback to that, and that monologue was also a callback to Faust's Wank Cave. Um, yes. Back in act, uh, back in uh, part one, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to to our our episode on the second part of. I think it was Faust part one, part two. Yes, <laughs> that's how we called it. <laughs> anyway, um, all of these things they they have a kind of thematic resonance, and they sort of like add up to these moments, these these Faust soliloquies. And uh, here he is being set back down in Germany, and he starts meditating on the sort of feminine sublime or the feminine ideal, which leads him onward. Uh, He sees it in the clouds, and it makes him think back to Gretchen. We we haven't really touched on Gretchen or or touched on anything that happened in Faust Part 1 throughout you know, this entire thing. And that's another one of the, I guess the scandal of Faust part two is that, you know, the really, really gut wrenching stuff from part one is just kind of ignored. Yeah. But this is Luke's translation. He says, yes, now my eye is not deceived on softest bedding, sun gleams, splendid. There she lies a woman's form, most godlike giant, like indeed I see it. It is like Juno, Lita, Helena, with what majestic charm it hovers in my sight. So he's looking up at the clouds and he's seeing a giant woman. Um, he's got some kind of fetishistic something going on there. But um, that sort of becomes the emblem to him of this you know, eternal feminine. And that, I think, is also to Goethe's point. Like the, you know, part one was really, really grounded in the specificities of that tragedy. And part two keeps going to these really sort of abstract 
I mean, almost cartoonish places. And, you know, at, at the end, when Faust is called up to heaven, there's sort of a further meditation on this, but it seems as if Goethe is arguing that um, it's these broad archetypes or these broad forms which mm-hmm. allow you to sort of see yourself in them or see the reality in them. So the particularities aren't as important as these other kinds of broad forms are. And the broad form is the thing that the artwork can do so that you can supply it with your own energy or with your own experience. Um, I, I, I'm not explaining this as clearly as I could be under other circumstances, (laughs) but I, I, I think you kind of get the idea. We, we talked about this a little bit before, um, when we were doing act one and I was suggesting that there's this weird thing in there where, um, excuse me, where Faust or, or, or Goethe is publishing this after he's already dead. And there's this kind of animating spirit throughout. It's like, um, the the Goethe that is both there and not there, the Goethe that's the ghost of the machine. But the other part of the machine is the spectator. Yeah. And we come back again, I think, at the end to this idea that the spectator makes the spectacle. The spectacle is kind of like this broad, abstract form. The spectator must provide it with the individual um, experience to make it real. Right. Oh, so we're so we're, the we're dealing with a little bit of uh, quantum superposition <laughs> in, in in dramaturgy. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, in a kind of way, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so so Faust keeps getting drawn to the abstract, yeah. but the abstract reminds him of the real. <clears throat> he says, "But round my breast and brow there hovers still so cool, so pleasing and caressing." A bright wisp of cloud, now lightly, hesitantly, higher it ascends and shapes itself. Does joy delude, or do I see that first, that long-lost, dearest treasure of my youth? Uh, That would be Gretchen. Um, He seems to see Gretchen in the clouds. He says that uh, they rise to view those riches of my deepest heart that leapt so lightly in the early dawn of love. That first look, quickly sensed and hardly understood, no precious jewel could have outshone it had I held it fast. Oh, lovely growth. Oh, spiritual form. Um, he's still thinking of her to some capacity. Yeah. But it's not with that kind of regret and reverie. Oh, my God, what have I done? It's, oh, man, she was beautiful. I still yeah. wish I could have her. It's a really weird, like, he, uh, yeah, he, he abstracted the concrete. And yeah. even even as the abstract reminds him of the concrete, he just reabstracts it. <laughs> like it's not this actual woman who he deeply wronged. And you know, if I were writing the play, I would write the rest of the play about how do you live with yourself after doing that. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, yeah, but yeah, it, he turns it into just another kind of figment. Yeah. So she's she's become a principle. Yes. You yes. Know? Um, and speaking of abstraction, Mephistopheles shows up uh, in a giant boot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay, a pair of boots comes clomping up. It's the seven league boots from the the sort of fairy tale tradition, and Mephistopheles hops out. 
And they have this sort of conversation back and forth that's modeled on the temptation of Christ. Mm-hmm. And um, Mephistopheles keeps asking Faust, well, what do you want now? And Faust basically says, I want to control nature. Yeah. Uh, he He's insulted by the chaotic, um, ever-moving ocean, and he says, I need to control that. Yes. I thought it was very interesting that the the objection that he raises is that, you know, here you have this this raw elemental power of the sea and it just crashes against the land again and again, but uh the land's still the same though. It hasn't done anything. Yeah. He wants to harness which and, and again which is also interesting that the uh, I, I kind of um I, I picked up some notes of uh geological theory happening here because there's also a kind of extended uh or not extended but uh, mephistopheles mentions things about like oh you know all these landforms are the results of what we demons got up to after the fall <laughs> like striking at things with sledgehammers and hurling rocks this way and that and that you know commoners re- retain this wisdom because anywhere you go like you if anyone there's an unusual rock the locals will call it devil's rock or devil's yeah. rock etc um, it's this kind of what's called a principle of geological theory, which was current um, in Good Day called uh, catastrophism, which yeah, was yeah. that the landforms that we have are the results of huge upheaval calamities at some point in the past, you know, directed by God's hand or not. Um, but there was not a kind of sense of any sort of what we might call a fluid process or a gradual process. Right of geological formation, which is why it was so funny to hear him talk about how like, well, the sea beats against the land and nothing ever changes when we actually know that like, well, no, that's actually a huge driver of geological change <laughs> is, is, is weathering by the, by ocean on continental shelves. Like that's, you know, but uh, yeah. you know, for, for Faust though, it's, it's just, he sees this, um, this enormous power unfocused and, and impotent to actually achieve anything. Yeah, and so, all right, there are a couple of things going on here. So, remember when I said there were thematic links? Mm-hmm. This is a revisitation of the old um, Neptunian versus um, Vesuvian geological outlook, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, this this was the thing that came up in, in uh, Act 2 in the classical Walpurgis Nacht, where, you know, the homunculus is caught between these two philosophers having a debate about whether or not change is gradual and deliberate over time yeah. or whether it's sudden, rapid, and violent. Yes. Right? yes. And Goethe's view was the Neptunian. He, he thought <clears throat> successful change I – mean, we talked about this a little bit, but it's basically his conservative outlook. Successful change right. is slow – um, he was not in favor of any kind of revolution. I mean, he was an old aristocrat, more or less. And right. <laughs> he, he, he did blame the aristocrats for the revolution. I mean, he, he sort of wound up saying, well, if your people turn against you and behead you, then it means you weren't a very good ruler. And yeah, you, you he's weren't got a fulfilling, point. <laughs> yeah, you weren't fulfilling your actual intended role as an aristocrat. You know, there's that. You yeah, lost the but, mandate of heaven. It, it, yeah, but he still assumes that that should be your, you know, intentional role. Right. Uh, so anyway, it's his anti. There's a lot in Act Four and Five 
or Acts four and five that that speak to his anti revolutionary outlook. But there's another thing that's going on that that Luke sort of notes. It, it's oblique and off to the side, but in the introduction to his translation, he notes that the the sort of eternal feminine isn't really seen throughout most of Acts four and five until you get to mm-hmm. the end when it sort of comes up right at the very end. Yeah. But you could possibly read, if you take some of Goethe's, um, <clears throat> excuse me, contemporary writings into account, you could read nature itself as a version of the eternal feminine. Yeah. Uh, there are apparently some essays that Goethe had written where he, he categorizes nature as a kind of chaotic feminine that must be maintained and controlled and so on and so forth in this misogynistic way. Yeah. That seems to me a convincing read and it, it, it would connect this all together with Goethe's drive in the old age for one more way of containing and controlling the eternal feminine and being sort of, I guess, motivated toward it. Mm-hmm. And, and it really does bring out the underlying misogyny of this text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in any case, um, the the dialogue with uh, Mephistopheles is a parallel to Christ. Mephistopheles basically asks, or parallel to the temptation of Christ, and Mephistopheles asks, well, what now? What do you want? Uh, Faust wants to control the tides, and Mephistopheles says, well, first you're going to need some land to do it, and I know how to get that. Yes. <laughs> it's time to scam the emperor again. <laughs> so let's go back to the Holy Roman Emperor and uh, pull another fast one on him. Yep. Um, essentially, the the end result of the scam that they pulled the last time is that the emperor has lost power. His people are in revolt, and they've chosen the anti-emperor to wage war on this emperor and so you've got the fight of the two emperors now we never see any of this and and this is one of the funny things both of the 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 texts that have been consulting articulate that goethe at various stages had written a whole lot of connective material Hmm. and then took it out yeah so you know, we never see Faust descend to the underworld to get Helen in this sort of Orphic way. We never see the action in Act 4. We never see any of the sort of dramatic stuff that you would expect to see in a play. Yeah. We have it related to us. Yes. <laughs> and, and yeah. It's so that I mean that seems deliberate frustration on Goethe's part because apparently he was trying to get out from under a kind of narrative dramaturgy closer trying to get I guess closer to something like symbolic or expressive opera. Yeah. Well, I think it's yeah, it's interesting that he's more like, you know, like uh oh, well, you know, if you came here to watch a story be told, you know, there's you can get that anywhere. <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm, ta- I'm taking I'm taking, you know, dramaturgy to strange new places. Well, I, I remember I, I I can't remember if she spoke about this on air or not, but when I was talking to my friend Rachel, she was saying that um part 2 really struck her as more like a pastiche, like it's extraordinarily mm-hmm. fragmented. And then oh, yeah. he just 
throws in anything and everything that he wants to. And, um, you know, it's, it's almost like he outdid the postmodern pastiche before there was a postmodern pastiche. And, um, it wouldn't be the first time that, uh, we've read a work that anticipates so much of what people think, you know, they've invented in the 20th century with like, or maybe not, I think, but like, uh, that, that's what struck me about Don Quixote. So oh, much is that it's such, it's such an intensely meta text through and oh, through. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Well, but then, you know, he, he out fragmented the wasteland. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like Goethe, Goethe was his own Ezra Pound. I, I, I don't know if you know, but Ezra Pound famously took out all of the connections that Elliot made in the wasteland. Uh, Ezra Pound and Elliot's wife, um, Elliot's wife, Vivian, was heavily involved in the editing of the original text of the wasteland. And she and Pound took out a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, Goethe just took it out himself. So he <laughs> out-fragmented the wasteland. Um, but anyway, so they, there's all this sort of fragmented stuff. But they, they, they decide to go hassle the emperor again. And apparently the end result of the, the hassling him the first time, the sort of fraud that they, they played on him, was to create instability in the empire. So there's this Napoleonic figure who's never on stage, but is a kind of counter emperor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think critics read it as Napoleon in some way, shape or form who is behaving much the same way just for different ideological purposes, but yeah. the practical results are, are essentially the same is how the play kind of frames it. Right. So going in on the original emperor's side is something of an arbitrary gesture. And we're meant to believe that this emperor really is kind of weak and a poor ruler because it was his own frivolousness, which led to him being, you know, potentially deposed, but he is the old aristocrat with the greater land ties. So let's go ahead and support him. Goethe comes down on the side of the aristocracy when given the choice. So <laughs> support him, they do. Uh, to use magic and fraud one more time, uh, Mephistopheles jumps into the fray and conjures the mighty men. Yes. <laughs> I think is hysterical. Mephistopheles conjures these three great heroes who are translated as the mighty men. And, and they're sort of like these allegorical figures. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're none too bright, but they are big and demonic and big, heavy, tough guys. And they get in there and kind of get the job done and route the other side. And the suggestion is that this is all illusion one more time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a very the, – the mighty men were interesting in the – well, I mean they're just, just they're, they're just rapacious. It's just this very <laughs> – this very uh, – cynical view of warfare uh mm-hmm. just a, you know because there's there's bully the the youngest of the bunch and uh and take hold the the mm-hmm. you know the man after the loot and uh oh gosh what was the name of the 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 the, the last one the hold the hold keep holder i i don't, I don't remember if it was keep holder. yeah um but you know ta- keeping what you've 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 gained by your bullying and, and taking um I, I was this might be a stretch, but I was reminded of the uh early Republican legionary system uh mm-hmm. of Rome, which 
and and this was a sort of an idealized version of it, but uh, the idea was that when you were a young man, you served as a hestatos, a spear bearer. Um, uh, but you wouldn't actually carry a spear. You, you'd have a sword and a shield, but you'd be kind of the, the front lines. And, and behind them were the principes. You're a little older, a little more wizened. This is your prime years. You know, you're in your early 30s. Um, and you were kind of there to hold the, to, you know, be the, the, the bulk of everything. And all this was backed up by a line in the back of your most grizzled old veterans, uh, fighting in a kind of old hoplite style called the triarii, who are just there mm. to kind of hold the line at the last pitch with, you know, the most hardened guys you have. Mm. And I, I feel like these, these three expressions of martial vehemence kind of echoed that, that, uh, it was called the Camillan Legion system, which was later replaced by the Marian Legions. Um, but that kind of tripartite uh, dividing of roles according to your age and experience. Um, th- this is what kind of drew me to mind because, of course, the, you know, the, the old keep hold is there to, to hold everything down, you know. Uh, yeah. Which got me in mind like, oh, wait, that sounds a little bit like the, you know, the role that the Triarius was supposed to perform, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I mean, that, that I wouldn't put it past him to be in his mind. Yeah. I mean, Goethe the classicist most likely knew – a great deal about um, <laughs> yeah. ancient warfare. Yeah. So I, I that I, that sounds about right to me. Um, so they win through magic. They win through fraud. Right. They win through illusion. Just like they they got him out of debt through fraud. Yes. Uh, so we end that act in the rival emperor's tent. So in the tent of the counter emperor. Uh, basically it starts out with a couple of the buddy men coming in trying to uh, grab as much cash as they can from the tent. <laughs> with the, so uh, that with their, gets with their tent to, follower uh, 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 assistant. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so essentially they're, they're just trying to sort of, as you said, this is a de-glamorization of, of warfare. Yeah. It's just spoils. It's a smash and so they're, Yeah. They're kicked out, and then um, we have the the emperor basically ceding power to a bunch of um, princes, basically giving over lands and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. giving rewards for everything that was done. And it's an extraordinarily ironic and somewhat cynical scene where um, the princes are just as debauched as the emperor, and then the <clears throat> the church gets the biggest share. And the church keeps coming back in and says, oh, by the way, because you use demonic shit to get here, uh, we're going to need a bigger tithe. (laughs) (laughs) So the emperor (laughs) wins, but it's an extraordinarily ironic win. And the whole thing is he gave uh, Faust a huge chunk of land and now he gets – like the emperor basically gets nothing for having maintained emperorship. Yeah. So he actually kind of loses in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. This I get, is, not not this to is, make this all about parallels to the vast long history of Rome, but that's the, and I don't think this is necessarily was on Goethe's mind because this was not the contemporary view of what happened with the fall of Rome, but that's very, very much what happened with the end of the Western Roman empire is that you had an increasingly weak, imperial center that kept delegating defense duties to these armies of you know well-equipped and hardened barbarians who were roaming around Mm -hmm. like rather than keep fighting them like hey come over on my side say that i'm your 
you know, pledge fealty and loyalty to me. And then you can rule over Gaul however you want. Just defend it. <laughs> and eventually they just make themselves obsolete. <laughs> right. You know, there you go. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I would say it's kind of the same thing, except with the church thrown in for good measure. Yes. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, yet another anti-clerical satire. Yeah. So that's how Goethe, or that's how Faust gets his land. And that brings us to act five. You see what I mean? Like to, to any of our listeners, this is what we're talking about. This is the surprisingly coherent. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's nowhere near the kind of wild phantasmagoria of the earlier stuff. Well, at least until we get to the end. Yeah, okay, it's it's, five, it's um it's well that was it's it's coherent, but it's also kind of like perfunctory. Like yeah, it's like okay, and that's how Faust got his land. And then we jump ahead to what must be decades <laughs> after this. <laughs> so yeah, we jump way forward in time and um. We jump to two characters who we've never seen before uh, and who we don't really see much of afterwards because they're dead. Um, we have Bacchus and Philemon, um, or Philemon. Uh, Bacchus and Philemon. It's a story um, taken from Ovid's Metamorphoses. It's an old Greek story where a couple of the gods come down and they're judging humankind. I think in Ovid it's Jupiter and oh, I wrote this down so I wouldn't have to remember. Um, Jupiter and Mercury. And they come down to judge humankind. Basically, hey, if people are nice to us and they don't know we're gods, then we'll see what we can see and uh, if enough people are nice, then we'll spare humankind. And if everyone's a jerk to us, then we'll kill them all. Uh, well, Bacchus and Philemon uh, are this elderly couple who take in the wanderers and give them what little they have. And so <laughs> Jupiter and Mercury say, well, they're the two good ones. We're going to spare them. Everyone else dies and they flood the world. Well, the the flooding motif is going to come back up because Bacchus and Philemon are they're this elderly couple who are taking up the last sort of this, the last little square property that Faust wants in order to I guess finish his grand design, yes. which is really kind of obnoxious. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second, but. Um, they welcome in this wanderer who is, uh, I believe, a sailor, and he wants to know about, you know, what all this is going on. And they give him the backstory. Apparently, uh, Faust has been using Mephistopheles and his diabolical laborers to industrialize this section of land. Um, the Okay, I'm going to the notes that I was reading, the Norton and the the Oxford. Both of them sort of point out that Goethe is a bit ambivalent about industrialization. Like on the one hand, biographically, he was pretty pro I guess industrial project. Um, if it made things, I guess, more quote unquote efficient, then, um, he was all for it. 
like he he was uh sort of for canals that would link waterways and mm-hmm. all about sort of cultivation and industrial cultivation um on the other hand he was also aware of some of the drawbacks uh the the dehumanization that can go on mm-hmm. as well as some of the ecological issues and so it's it's a kind of back and forth um there's an ambivalence there faust is proud of his project but it was all diabolical projects yeah i, I thought it was interesting too the the nature of because you know the um you know, Goethe's writing during the kind of the transition from Enlightenment to Romanticism in kind of the wider cultural milieu. And I, I'm not enough of a cultural historian to speak with much authority on this. But one thing I do recall from reading about like this time is that there was a very distinct mode of what landscapes were to be admired at work in the Enlightenment. There mm-hmm. was actually a they're, they're <laughs> at least in the, in the French Enlightenment, and you find this reflected in the French Garden, right? Because you know the, the sort of the great garden traditions. There's the French Garden and the English Garden, and the English Garden is the one with like nice little wooded paths, and it's a little bit wild, and maybe there's a a folly to, built to look like a tumble down ruin there, and it's all very hobbitsy. Yeah, the French <laughs> gardens are the ones you go to, and everything is is geometric, right? It's these yeah, yeah, yeah. starkly geometric layouts. Uh, on the on the like flat planes, flat frictionless planes, where you just use plants mm. as like as as vectors, and that's a that's yeah. a carryover of this Enlightenment attitude, of course, which they were all about regularizing and systematizing. That saw yeah. basically flat, even ground as the ideal of beauty, and you would have people mm. writing sniffingly about taking a trip on the carriage through the through the provinces and like, Oh, those ugly craggy mountains, <laughs> you know, these kinds of, these kinds of landforms that we today are think of as tourist attractions and like, you know, the high right. natural beauty were kind of snubbed and disdained. And that kind of jumped out to me about Faust's particular landforming project where he's using demonic labor to make a flat featureless plane with a, a single like rod straight canal. <laughs> <laughs> running through it. Yeah. It was a, it was a very like, oh well, damn, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, so this this is such a, a political cliche in our own time, but he's literally draining the swamp. Yes. I mean that that's his <laughs> ultimate goal. Yeah, that's right. Um but the Okay, so they they give the backstory on all this and, and there is this ambivalence in, in Faust's project. There seems to be an ambivalence in Faust. There seems to be an ambivalence, or there's not an ambivalence in Faust. There's an ambivalence in Goethe, so that this whole yes. Act Five is really sort of darkly ironic. Yes, um, it's so darkly ironic that the the question remains: Well, why the hell is Faust saved? Uh, but that's we'll, we'll get to that, I guess, when we get to that. So Faust <clears throat> is angry that someone dares to hold out. go buy him out, you know? And, um, he tells Mephistopheles and the three mighty men, go chase these guys out of here. And I've already given them, you know, a great tract of land to sort of start over and do what have you. Why are they holding on to this, this nothing? 
And uh, so Mephistopheles and the Mighty Men go and kill them along with the Wanderer who just kind of accidentally showed up there and uh, burn the whole thing down. Now, we don't see any of that. We have it told to us by Lincius, the the watchman, mm-hmm. who just kind of shows up there. Um, he seems to be, you know, he's one of the characters from, I believe, the classical Valpurgis Nox. And I was wondering, like, he has a monologue where he basically describes the burning yes. and he describes, you know, the calamity. Um, I I was curious. I couldn't sort of be satisfied in this curiosity, but I was curious if he's not uh, drawn from the the Watchmen in Agamemnon because he kind of has that function. I don't know if you've ever read Agamemnon, but it really sort of begins with <clears throat> the Watchmen waiting for the signal to know that Troy has been taken, and he's been yeah. waiting there forever. And on the one hand, the signal that Troy has been taken would be a good sign that Agamemnon is on his way back and all of this nonsense is over. On the other hand, he has a, a particular inkling that when Agamemnon gets back, uh, it's going to be bad. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, um, and that, I don't know. Lincius has that kind of function where he's watching, but what he watches is sort of, you know, the fire that occurs. And he's got this horrid description of these elderly people who are killed. Uh, and Faust um, is at first excited because, okay, they're old, they've been kicked out, their place is burned down, but I've got a great new place for them to live and everything will be fine. And uh, then Mephistopheles comes in and says, yeah, we killed him. You know, we tried to get him out of there, but what are you going to do? So Faust gets <laughs> mad. Um, and this you claim to have done for me. I said, exchange, not robbery, deaf savages, I curse this deed. Now share my curse, your follies mead. Um, they're like, what? What did we do? You told us to get rid of them. All right. So anyway, at midnight, uh, four gray women in the form of cares and guilt and anxiety come to visit Faust and they blind him. But okay, again, (laughs) Gertha really lays it on. It's maybe you could identify with Faust in part one at certain points. Yeah. Right. Like he does come across as somewhat tragic in certain moments. And in part two, maybe his quest to keep questing is in some ways heroic, but after having caused the death of like an elderly couple, he's blinded, but here's his heroism. Um, night seems to close upon me deeper still, but in my inmost soul, a bright light shines. I hasten to complete my great designs. My works alone, my words alone can work my mastering will rise from your sleep. My servants, every man give visible success to my bold plan set to work now with shovel and with spade. I've marked it all all out. Let it be made with a well-ordered project and with hard toil we shall win supreme reward until the edifice of this achievement stands one mind shall move a thousand hands um faust is still heroic because you may have blinded me but my inner soul pushes on and i will still strive um you can't not read that ironically 
right? Yeah. He's he's still so showing the same, I guess, disregard for others that he was showing in Faust Part 1. Um, so Gretchen dies. Big deal. I'm still striving for the eternal feminine. Um, you know, how are we supposed to take this? This is... I don't know. It's it's abominable. You know, it's, it's really pretty I, I, monstrous. Yeah, and then, I, then that that bit about one mind moving a thousand hands also like it speaks to the I don't know. And and this is my own kind of uh, longtime listeners know my own political bent is toward the egalitarian, but like that kind mm-hmm. of like equating that you know power with just the you know I can I can tell all these other people what to do and they'll do it and therefore I did it. It's yeah. just one of the most <laughs> impotent things I can imagine, and I hate it every time. I hate it every time. There was this there, I get so mad. I'm sorry, I was short aside. I get so mad. Uh at the library I work at, you know, we have a lot of uh uh documentary DVD sets, and there's one apparently History Channel did a series a few years ago called The Men Who Built America. And oh, it's Jesus just, Christ. And it's just biographies of the of the robber barons. Like your Vanderbilt and your Carnegie and everything. And I just want to scream at them. No, no. These men murdered the people who built America in their mills. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. please get your head on straight about this. <laughs> Sorry. I, yeah, just, I, I had to I, just as an aside. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think, um, I think most historians like, okay. You know, the, the railroads, I think in the early to mid 20th century were held up as this great American project by great American businessmen, but they were tremendous boondoggle and they were basically supported with public money and, uh, whatever rewards were reaped were reaped by the idiot bastard sons of, (laughs) you know, the already extraordinarily wealthy who basically sat around doing next to nothing. Yep. Other it, was, uh, before, it was so. it was it was a bonanza made possible by ethnic cleansing by the military and uh big subsidy giveaways. Um yeah. story story of America folks <laughs> starting from way back. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I, I yeah, that, that's exactly what's going on. It's and you can read Faust as fascist. I mean, we 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 spoke about this before that there's a way in which um the Nazis did kind of draw on aspects of German romanticism and, and mm-hmm. sort of, I, oh, I, yeah, I think big time. academics are still wrestling with this. I think, um, well, there was, there was you know, a German aesthetics the, is still uh, wrestling with this. Yeah, anyone involved, yeah. anyone involved in the romantics is still, still having to, this isn't just a German phenomenon. It's, it's something latent yeah. in, romanticism itself I, i'm not trying to pick on any german listeners um and, and i'm not trying to say well we're above that no we're obviously not <laughs> no and we're, we're um, about to dive uh, very deep into the romantic period actually <laughs> yeah <laughs> so anyway um no no, no. I, like there, there's something in a lot of romanticism that gets taken by fascist ideologies and turned into something that was not the intended thing. The thing that I think makes us uncomfortable in Faust, like you and me, I'm not speaking universally here, is the way that Faust kind of embraces that. 
Mm. Right. It, it's not as latent as we might like. And, you know, Thomas Mann wrote, um, Dr. Faustus based on this really heavily ironizing this particular kind of interpretation of Faust as the quintessential German myth or sort of the quintessential German ideology or something like that. Um, in any case, I think the ironizing, I don't know. I tend to feel like the ironizing was already there in Goethe that, okay, this is Luke's read on Goethe. Um, Luke claims that Goethe's original design was to have this kind of trial in heaven yeah. where, <clears throat> you know, Mephistopheles argues for taking Faust's soul because he's such a, a, a damned asshole. <laughs> And um, God on the other side is arguing that his constant striving is what saves him. Uh, Like even if it gets perverted in the outcome due to diabolical intercession, the impulse is there and the impulse is the thing that saves. All right. um, Luke's case is that uh, at the end of the day, Goethe took all of that out because he thought it was too explicit, but also it, it gets at, it gets at something that is, is supposed, we're supposed to be able to take from the text that the whole thing is ambivalent and equivocal. Yeah. That we're meant to feel in some ways ambivalent about Faust. And the fact that his desires and his designs lead him to this destructive place are also the things that, I mean, that, that's a counterbalance to this drive that he has that ultimately is going to be for the good, yeah. even if the outcome is bad. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah. So, Which, and that's kind of one of the more alien. I don't know. That's well, that's a very that's a very classical idea right there. Really. Yeah. That's that's an extremely classical concept of this kind of um virtue and worthiness as just being a matter of like drive and ambition, no matter because you know, like I mean who who is the most celebrated uh figure of the classical era? You know, Alexander the Great, who who wreaked untold carnage across <laughs> across an entire continent under the and his motivation was personal aggrandizement. And everyone was like, oh well, yeah, of course it was. What? What else is there? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like where like a kind of, you know, that's a classical element that actually kind of persists, I guess, in this, in this, you know, maybe that's part of the, you know, the 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 classical uh that actually is able to be married to this conception of German Protestantism. I, hey. I I'm not sure how successfully it manages <laughs> to be done. <laughs> Well, okay. So the part that makes me want to slap him so bad is um, when, okay, outside of the palace, Faust, blinded, is directing Mephistopheles and a bunch of um, demons. And he's telling them, dig here, do this, do this, do this. And they're digging and digging and digging. But what he doesn't realize is that they're digging his grave. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, ironies compounded on ironies, but Faust has this thing. All right. I'm sorry. If we survive all this, we're recording in the middle of a pandemic and <laughs> a particular feature of the United States in this pandemic is for people for political reasons to basically say that they don't want to take safety precautions and live with the greatest amount of risk possible, risking not only their lives, but the lives of others in this extraordinarily selfish gesture, which is, uh, I guess, read as freedom to their limited and stupid minds. Uh, Faust makes yeah. the same case. Yeah. Uh, a swamp surrounds the mountain's base. It poisons all I have achieved till now. I'll drain it too. That rotten place shall be my last great project. I see how to give those millions a new living space. They'll not be safe, but active, free at last. Uh, my risk is my freedom. Yeah. Give me a fucking tower right now. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> the, I don't know. It just it was one of those moments where if we weren't living at the time in which we were living, perhaps I wouldn't have been as feisty. But um, yeah. it, it's that. It, I want to live in constant danger all the time because only in constant risk will I feel the true liberation. Oh, give me a goddamn right. break. And, and, and not only that, but um, so you're going to have to also <laughs> to, for, yeah. for my own hangups. Yeah. So, you know, so Faust is risking nothing basically, but anyway, um, he says only that man earns, uh, yeah, he goes on, um, I see green fields so fertile, man and beast at once shall settle the new pleasant earth. 
fashioned by great embankments that will rise about them by bold labor brought, brought to birth. Here there shall be an inland paradise outside the sea as high as it can reach may rage and gnaw. And yet a common will, should it intrude, will act to close the breach. Yes, to this vision I am wedded still. And this, as wisdom's final word I teach, only that man earns freedom, merits life, who must reconquer both in constant daily strife. I mean, this is where we're getting into that fascism. I was going to say, this is a very uh, Arbeit macht frei <laughs> kind of yeah. ethos here. Well, I, I mean, it's it's hard in the 21st century not to read it that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and it's, it's hard in 21st century America not to read it in in this kind of stupid authoritarian, my freedom for your life kind of way. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, but if this recording is anything, it's a snapshot in time of our feelings about this thing. And yeah. um, one of the things that we set out to do was record our affective responses. And this is my affective exactly. response. Yeah. Well, what a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> In such a place by danger still surrounded, youth, manhood, age, their brave new world have founded. I long to see that multitude and stand with the free people on free land. Then to the moment I might say, beautiful moment, do not pass away. Till many ages shall have passed, this record of my earthly life shall last. And in anticipation of such bliss, what moment could give me greater joy than this? And then he dies. Um, <laughs> this is... I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to read this completely as Faust reaching his culminating moment. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think he had better ones earlier, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. Uh, well, but there's a kind of legalistic... Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, like, something that kind of is hitting me, like, listening to you read it, like... And again, this is this is an artifact of me reading it in 2020 knowing what i know about what was going to happen in the future of goethe's germany but it almost has a touch of the kind of incipient german nationalism which was just beginning to oh, kind yeah. of percolate among the uh, uh the, basically the the bourgeois and the educated classes at the time because something you need to remember is that in the in the 19th century nationalism was a project of overeducated people with a lot of time on their hands there's no such thing as an organic nation that a nation state yeah. is an expression of. Every nation state is constructed by bourgeois busybodies. Sorry to ruin everyone's yeah. fun. There's no such thing as a folk. It's a construct. Get over it. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> to say that. Yeah. Um, but this well, I was, like, I'm sorry. Like it's it's that trope of real America that, that always pisses me off so much. Yeah. There, there, there are more people on my block than there are in Wyoming. And for some reason, we're not legitimately national or don't have the same kind of rights as a state made up mostly of land and not people. But be that as it may. Yes, yes. Uh, but all that to say, like the, the notion of like Faust is here. He's literally building a land for the millions. That <laughs> just strikes me as a very kind of the uh, – it's in with the rhetoric that would emerge in nationalism, which of course kind of all exploded in the 1848 revolutions. Um, right. And, and which are a fascinating sort of phenomenon there because like, as I've, you know, as I've kind of talked about, like, you know, nationalism is, is, is a bourgeois project. It of course became 
a focus of reactionary energy afterward. But in the early 19th century, it was also kind of you would lump it in on the left left wing side of things because it meant taking nations away from being the private property of monarchs. Right. It really, it really right. is a matter of like it's it, it it sort of became entwined with what we would consider, quote unquote, left wing causes and energies because it was like, no, we are especially with like, you know, say the Hungarian national movement, like, but we are the Hungarian people, not subjects of the Habsburgs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's a very weird time. <laughs> um, but I, I really all that, that kind of that particular Faust speech really says to me this kind of like well what is well maybe this is a real maybe maybe this is a transcendent desire that he had mm. maybe i got it all wrong i'm discovering this as i say it but maybe i got it all wrong yeah. that he's stepping back and like this is something more mundane than chasing after the uh the eternal feminine in helen or whatever instead it's a again kind of you know misogynistic attitude of founding and forging this nationhood, this place, you know, transforming nature as you see it into the crucible of a folk, you know, and where they can live their Lebensraum, if you will. <laughs> right. And the other side of this, Luke does make a case that you can read this as it's broad enough and symbolic enough that you can read it as totalitarianism like you could read it as fascist. You could read it as sort of Soviet style totalitarianism. You could read it as a variety of different kinds of totalizing systems mm -hmm. to view the human as a, a sort of closed circuit to be forced in a particular way into, you know, a particular vision of freedom. Right. And I think that's that's also the the kind of irony here. Faust's tyranny is for the sake of freedom. Yeah, and we've seen the the result of that. Like this old couple who, you know, works hard on us to develop a sense of pathos. Well, they're murdered. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Faust just goes on. So, like. Right, I can, it, it's, it it's, really it's, it's it's it's. I'm with you. Like I think Goethe is very ambivalent about it. You know, yeah, he's absolutely Goethe himself is ambivalent about it. I, I it, yeah, it became clear to me that Faust, the character Faust, is much less ambivalent about it, and he is kind of <laughs> foreshadowing. You know, your kind of your your Otto yeah. von Bismarck <laughs> to come later in the yeah. century. <laughs> so, in any case. Um, <laughs> He he dies, and the language is is equivocal because it suggests possibly that he's reached his apotheosis, but he reaches his apotheosis in eternal striving, mm -hmm. which means he will never reach his apotheosis. Which is that sort of paradox that we got to back when we were analyzing the the wager in the first place. Yeah. So he falls over dead. And uh, Mephistopheles and the demons all sort of have to watch, like they guard his body um, because they're waiting for his soul to come out. It might come out through his nose. It might come out through his mouth. Watch his navel and his asshole because he might have to fart it out. <laughs> uh, it goes from, you know, 
this kind of weird, darkly ironic pseudo-fascist thing to like the lowest comedy. <laughs> and then the choir of angels appears and they start raining um, rosebuds down on the demons and it burns the devils. And uh, Mephistopheles is so overcome by the beauty of these heavenly boys um, they turn around and show their asses and he's so taken aback in his own erotic <laughs> frenzy that they managed to sneak in and steal Faust's soul. All right. That's what saved this act for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so ridiculous. It's so absurd. And um, the, the joke in here is that <clears throat> there's a suggestion that even the devil can be saved by beauty. Um, Satan himself yeah. might actually be able to be transformed through this kind of erotic potential. Um, and it's, it's just silly beyond all belief. Uh, I mean, that, that ending is so spectacularly bizarre. Yeah. And it's, you know, when, when you're reading Acts 4 and 5, <clears throat> they, they are so extraordinarily straightforward in this roundabout way. But then we're back to that good old phantasmagoria that Goethe could do so well. And it's like, all right, buddy, here we go. This is what I came for. You know? <laughs> so, That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just fantastically weird and 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 it shouldn't work. The mix of tones shouldn't work. The body and the genuine shouldn't work together, and yet it, it's it's so outrageous that it really does. And it's a last little bit of fun before we get some half baked Dante thrown in there. Right. Um, <laughs> well, I, okay, I'm being mean. The, the whole last part takes place in a kind of mountain gorge with these heavenly speaking voices. And so you have these masculine speaking voices and then these feminine speaking voices. And then ultimately, uh, Faust's soul sort of rises upward into the feminine and it, it goes uber Catholic, which is really kind of strange. Um, you have this, uh, this sort of Beatrice, Gretchen becomes a kind of Beatrice figure. Yeah. And she has been interceding on the part of Faust's soul. She is lumped together with these holy divine penitents, which means that she was saved because she was truly sorry for all the horrible stuff that she did. Faust was saved just because he never gave up. So <laughs> it doesn't matter that what you're doing is awful, buddy, you stuck to your guns and we admire that here in heaven. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it's hard to get past the misogyny. It's, it's, it's hard to yeah. get past, um, you know, what this means. But the, the, the best read on the ending, I think, comes from, or, or not necessarily the best read, but what I thought was sort of like the most fascinating read on the ending was from the, uh, interpreted notes in the Norton, um, which, which kind of makes this case that, it, it it turns back into that metadrama for a bit. Mm -hmm. Like it, it goes so fully symbolic and, and you know, I, I'm being mean by calling it half-baked Dante. It's, it's not, it's, it's actually a pretty fascinating ending to read. And I'm sure in the original German, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, I believe Mahler had set pieces of it to, 
to music. I think in one of his symphonies, he uses parts of, of, um, the sort of mountain gorges scene, but, but the notes in the, in the Norton sort of make this case that this could be like one final meta theatrical turn. This gets us back to that kind of weird place where we started Mm-hmm. And all of the symbolic action and all the symbolic um, utterances sort of bring to mind the way that this is kind of like a, a, a parameter to be filled by the individual experience. Like you read into it and you you bring it to life in your own life, like action and doing or making your own metaphors or making your own symbolic structure is out of these kind of universal systems that Goethe seemed to think were there that, that, you know, putting it to work for yourself is the way to actualize it. So these things are always going to be sort of floating around and it's up to the audience to, to do it, to make it real in the sense through acting it out. Right. Engagement. So we're we're back to that weird metaphysical thing, and I I think in that sense, you know, I keep flirting with this idea that that you know I talked about this when we were doing Act One, and I, I'm sort of bringing us full circle back into it. But it's sort of like David Bowie's Black Star, David Bowie's last album. I know yeah. that's kind of like a a pop art comparison to this you know higher piece but you know the whole point of that album is by the time you hear this i'll be gone this is the final action right and there's this way in which it seems suggestive in faust that the apotheosis of faust is the apotheosis of goethe this is the final action this is the elevation into the next level and whatever the next level is is something i won't be able to articulate because i won't be here yeah but i can at least chart the action you know yeah um and that's that's it that's that's fast (laughs) (laughs) no so you can so listen you you can kind of see why we decided to do act four and five together um they they flow one right into the other really they seemed more of a unit than the rest of part two for sure. Um, yeah. And, and also we wanted to get it over with, <laughs> <laughs> but there's still so, some mysteries to me. All right. So yeah. first of all, to, to get back to, I guess our project, um, yeah, yeah. The affective reaction as, as much as I really want to slap fast Faust around by the end of this, I do find this a fascinating work. Oh, I mean, for sure. it's, it's, it's so outrageous. Like it's yeah. so silly and strange and wild and weird all at once that it is, it does draw you to it. I yeah. I don't feel a kind of kinship to it uh, in the way that I feel to, to Don Quixote. I yeah. Mean, the, yeah. I would, if I had nothing else to do for the rest of my life, I would read Don Quixote every day. Um, <laughs> yeah, I that, think you're right. That, that work like, drew the, me into it. The kind of that kinship is a good word for it. Like you know, I, I felt that yeah. with Don Quixote. I felt that with with Montaigne, especially, which I think probably oh, has yeah. the advantage of like being you know tossed off ramblings written in a first person. You know that, that helps bring it bring it home a little bit. But I mean, but but in, I think in a more important way, like 
the for whatever reason like the the kind of the priorities at work in faust Mm -hmm. are ones that are not mine to the extent that like i i would get a lot out of you know that's not what i that's not what i got out of it but it but it is it, it, it but i did get a lot out of it as a god as a, as a window <laughs> into, yeah into into a kind of set of priorities or 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 um preoccupations that aren't my own mm-hmm. and, and in that i think it was a very I'll, I'll go ahead and say i do not regret reading it um oh no i, I don't know that i'll ever come back to it uh uh-huh. i well i say that I come back to almost everything eventually in, in a way. Um, but the, oh man, how, how to articulate this? I've been reading this fucking book for a year, <laughs> but, um, yeah, well, I, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I, I think you, you have more, you have, I, no, I mean, I, 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 I keep, I, I'm with you on this, that there's a kind of, I, I can't be in sympathy with so much of the ideas. I can't mm-hmm. be in sympathy with so much of what it's trying to advertise. And there's a lot of it that I find kind of alienating. And I think we that reaches its that was there in part one. Like that alienation from Faust the character from Faust the project, it was there in mm-hmm. part one. I mean, he's an asshole to Gretchen and basically gets away with it all. Right, right, and he there's there's an alienation from him by the end of Act Five. Like the only person I really feel in sympathy with is uh, Mephistopheles. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's <laughs> <laughs> he's at least funny, but um, I mean, Faust's project is it. Striving above all things, I get what Goethe is trying to say about the the animating spirit being being primal in some ways, or or it's it's the intention, not the result, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah. he goes to such lengths to show us the horrible results of the intention, and it's just would you just give it up, man? You know, <laughs> like the, 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 the intention can't over like the, the acknowledgement of the intention can't overlooked, overlook the, the real horrible stuff that he does. And it's that alienation that I feel throughout. Maybe there was a time, uh, where things would have been different. But the ironies are too compounded by the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the ironies are compounded in the first part of Faust, and they're even more compounded at the end, where I'm just, I... Take me back to Don Quixote, please. Um, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, we're using sort of points of contact, and we're at the end of what Bloom calls his aristocratic age, or, you know drawing from his thinkers, you know, Vico and um, Bruno, you know, this is the aristocratic age. Yeah. And, you know, looking back, we're, we're at the end of that and it's, you know, appropriate enough, I think, to look back on where we've come and where, like, 
where we've come from, like what we've covered so far. And of the works that we have covered, I didn't feel this kind of alienation in Dante. Yeah. I didn't feel this kind of alienation in, in Chaucer. In fact, Chaucer was, I mean, Chaucer felt closer to home in a lot of ways. Well, I think, um, I think something, it, you say close to home. Mm-hmm. I think perhaps there's enough, we might be getting to like the, the, the sort of historical eras which are close enough to our own mm-hmm. where the 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 balls that are in the air the things that are in play yeah are closer to what are in play now so that yeah there might be it it might hit a little more because like you know i i can read you know we can read dante and like i mean i don't have a dog in the race between gelfs and ghibellines so i can just <laughs> sit back and enjoy you know yeah. <laughs> that that, uh, that gibbling fuck is getting his due. You know, in hell, um, mm. it's just all part of the part of the experience for me. But we might be getting like you know, and and, and maybe not specifically with Faust. It, I, it maybe we were reading a lot into it, but yeah, we might we might be getting to a stage in literature and and you know and letters where they're they're asking and answering questions that are in some respects still being asked and answered today, and. So yeah. it's going to be a little more prickly. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, if I could spend time with any of these works again, it would be Don Quixote. Yeah. Because that, that <laughs> one felt, that one felt so contemporary. Um, how do you live when, how do you live in a situation where your political system might be trying to kill you and your neighbors <laughs> also might be trying to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> that, that hit a little too close to home, but it was also such a benevolent work. Like for the most, it, it's, it's mm-hmm. kind hearted in its own weird way. Yeah. It, it and, clearly had a, a very kind regard for humanity and, and even the humanity of the, well, of course it had a very kind regard for the most oafish character of all, which was of course Don Quixote himself. Um, well, I say oafish, but I mean, you know, clearly there were there were more, you know. Uh, anyway, I, I guess what I mean to say is like, yeah, like there, there it, Cervantes seemed much more interested in extending uh, uh, a kind of uh, where's my perspicacity gone? I'm 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 with you on on Don Quixote being a, more, a much more humane work, right? Like there's yeah. much, there's much less any, anyone who anyone in Don Quixote who is who is striving to rec- to to achieve and and whatever and and is trampling other people to do it is very clearly painted as an asshole who's, who's yeah. just hurting people. It's not this ambivalent relationship to it the way it is in Goethe, and an ambivalent relationship in Goethe, which um. You know, we we that we see developing throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century. You know, with your you know, well, it's almost well, Faust is almost what a Nietzschean Superman, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And and we all know how uh, you know. I mean, there's. I do think there is much in Nietzsche that is interesting, but I I think you know I I, I tend to uh, find myself a little repulsed. Um, mm-hmm. by 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 the concepts and you know yeah like even even in the more sort of openly aristocratic age of right. cervantes or chaucer 
Um, or Montaigne for that Montaigne, instance. right. And, and who was himself, you know, an arist- all these people were, you know, either aristocrat themselves or rubbed shoulders in that milieu. And right. maybe it is, maybe it is because the, the aristocracy was there and more or less accepted that it wasn't something up for grabs that you didn't have the same kind of like exploration of the will to dominate because there were just people who dominated. Right. They didn't get right. there by wanting to. They didn't get there by desiring to dominate over all else. They got there because they were born to it. Right. But instead in the 19th century in this in this, you know, the 18th to 19th centuries this kind of opening up, this kind of the the liberal revolutions that are occurring the you know the 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 so-called sort of like leveling the playing field for men of european extraction um all of a sudden if and you don't get rid of hierarchy at the same time then which is where i'm kind of sympathetic to the anarchists of the 19th century because they kind of saw that like well all you're doing is creating this fucking viper pit (laughs) yeah so like the the will to power of the bourgeoisie yeah which I think describes the last four years in America. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I, or, or, or that seems a plausible enough suggestion. I mean, I, I keep thinking back how, how do we look back on what we did over the past couple of years? And, mm-hmm. and all right, this is really stupid, <laughs> Admittedly. but I once asked, I had a uh, <clears throat> I had a professor I, I I really you know loved and respected in undergrad uh, and he was you know kind of an academic diva, but I, I asked him one time you know how do you know that a work that you're reading is good mm-hmm. you know and he said well think about it like this you can you can talk about a play or a poem or a, a novel or a story like you talk about a friend you talk about the qualities that you like that make you want to spend time with that person yeah and it's 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 not at all an academic way of thinking about this kind of reading and i would never say this in a class that i was teaching but i do kind of think about that what what are the what makes me want to spend time yeah. with any of these works? Which which of these and, works are a good hang? Yeah, and, and I keep coming back. I I will probably read Dante again at some point because yeah. I, I'm going to have to. But I really look forward to getting back to Montaigne and Cervantes. I, of of all the things that we've read, and I'm trying to articulate why that is. Like with Montaigne. I feel like a very interesting person is just telling me their views of the world that they both do and do not take seriously. And it's such a lighthearted, almost conversation that it's, it seems like a friendship or it seems like a camaraderie Um, with Don Quixote there's something of the same going on. It's the kind of play of friendship between Don Quixote and, and Sancho Panza. Mm-hmm. And then all the other wild characters that they meet therein. And, and Don Quixote's world seems so close to ours. There's, there's something about it that seems like this is, this is now that, that I think draws me to it. Um, I'm not quite sure what that is. I'm not quite sure what qualities those are. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's 
living in a world that, you know, looks and feels like a hellscape 90% of the time. Um, well, you know, it's, it's, I, I found myself thinking along similar lines, um, lately. <laughs> Here's a little window into my life, everybody. I've been going through a bit of a Steely Dan phase and, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is which has been a long been a part of my life i will i will say i was a uh as a as a 15 year old i listened to asia on my disc man on the on the bus and d- d- desperately hoping that nobody could hear the saxophone solos and everything because it was so lame but god it's so good anyway but i found myself wondering like okay like this you know the, the sort of the music that i like the music that i like to spend time with the music that's a good hang you know uh, Walter mm. and Donald are there in Steely Dan. They're making the smooth shit. I love it. Plug me right in. I'm 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 with it. And it's like, well, yeah, but also like, what what is the connecting strand in my brain connecting Steely Dan and like Crass <laughs> you know, or like Misfits or something? Yeah. Well, misfits, they're poppy though. They have that. But I mean, like you know, because I I do enjoy a lot of like very abrasive hardcore. And also just like the smoothest, like easy listening sounding shit you've ever heard in your life. If you're not listening closely, because Steely Dan mm-hmm. is actually very sophisticated and great. But like, yeah, I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about that. Like, what are the, what are the through lines? What are the actual, what do these things have in common other than that they're tickling my brain in a certain way? And it's, well, why is, is that the only commonality they have? <laughs> <laughs> it would seem that well, they must have something. All they need. There must be something that's going on <clears throat> to elicit a similar reaction. But you know, I don't know. Maybe I need to. I don't know. I'll, I'll read up on Descartes and Locke and all those idiots about sensory yeah. impressions. Who knows? Who knows? I, I I don't think you really need to. But anyway, I, I <laughs> guess we've we've done with the, with the aristocratic era, except for Shakespeare. And I think our plan mm-hmm. is to come back to Shakespeare at a later date. Yeah, uh, he's, just uh, because that seems like a, a project unto itself. He he is one kettle of fish, that guy. Yeah. Um, so what we're gonna do next <clears throat> is well, all right. Bloom moves into what he calls the democratic age, and that's sort of inaugurated with British Romanticism. And so he gives us uh, a chunk of Wordsworth and a chunk of Jane Austen. So what Daniel and I decided to do was instead of just reading one poem by Wordsworth, because who wants to do that? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we're going to take on the lyrical ballads. Uh, the lyrical ballads really were a kind of watershed events in um, English publication. And it, it allows us to kind of look back to the 18th century and think about how the 18th century became the 19th century. Yeah. How, you know, <laughs> socially, culturally, and politically, yeah. the sort of um, Augustan age became the, the Romantic age, mm-hmm. and how we move from the kind of heroic couplets that Pope and Johnson, you know, so admired to something um, a lot looser. And on the one hand, <clears throat> lyrical ballads is this watershed moment. On the other hand, it really does draw from a lot of what was going on in terms of working class writing in the later part of the 18th century. So what we're going to do next time is 
begin lyrical ballads, not with lyrical ballads, but with the background information on the age, the era, and the two contributors to the lyrical ballads, uh, William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Uh, so <laughs> I think next episode is going to be information heavy, and then we're going to read the 1798 lyrical ballads, and after that, the 1800 lyrical ballads. Yeah. So the, there are two publications of lyrical ballads um and they're both different uh they're expanded switched around things get weird anyway that's our plan 1798 and then the 1800 okay so i think that's it yeah rate and review on itunes um <laughs> Uh, check us out at the cannonball pod. Is it? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. On Twitter at the cannonball at uh, cannonball pod, or just, I think if you search for cannonball, you know, we should show up there, but yeah, at, at cannonball pod. Yeah. Interact with us on Facebook if you like, and you can find more information online at the cannonball so enjoy. Hope you had fun. And I'm going to put Goethe away for a long, long time. <laughs> well, set, set Goethe down and uh, I'm going to read something really brainless that I can just just inhale just as a, as a change of pace. <laughs> All right. And good night. Good night. Good night.